Now, there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the signs you were doing if God were not with him. Jesus replied, Very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. How can someone be born when they are old? Nicodemus asked. Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born? Jesus answered, Very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. How can this be? Nicodemus asked. You are Israel's teacher, said Jesus, and you do not understand these things? Very truly, I tell you, we speak of what we know and we testify to what we have seen, but still you people do not accept our testimony. I have spoken to you of earthly things and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world. But people loved darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be seen plainly that what they have done has been done in the sight of God. Lord, bless this word today. Amen. Thanks very much, Wendy. Great to have you read for us. Um, so keep that open, and uh, it's a you know it's a pretty long section of scripture, so we won't sort of uh, touch on every verse, but uh, we'll look to be encouraged and challenged by what Jesus has to say to us this morning. So let's pray again. Um, so Father, we do thank you for your word, and thank you that you speak to each one of us this morning. We pray that we'll be listening. We'll pray that we'll be reflecting on our own lives and our response to you. 
and uh, ultimately we pray that we'll be convinced and changed by Jesus' words. We pray in his name. Amen. Well, many of you know that before I came here, I was teaching scripture. You know, they have this special religious education program in public schools. I was teaching scripture in a public school, public high school in Sydney. And uh, it was around the time that I started this, and I started sort of these things came up very strongly on my radar, uh, that uh, this group called Fairness in Religion in Schools put this notice board up in southwest, or this billboard up, it was on one of the freeways in southwest Sydney, and they got a little bit of time on the media and that sort of thing. And at first glance, I mean, you read the statement in white, God says you are stuck in your sin and need to be rescued from his judgment. Now you think, oh, is that like, is that something from the Bible? Are they advertising scripture that we should have scripture in schools and that sort of thing? But then you look closely at the red writing, and what does it say? Opt out now. So this is actually an ad from Fairness in Religion in Schools, and they see the quote in white writing as so offensive that you should want to then take your kids out of weekly scripture lessons. Now, Sydney Anglican minister Michael Jensen wrote the book that this student manual is based on. So that's in some of them, it was in a previous curriculum in some of the student manuals that the kids had. And he made the comment that while the, the, uh, the material is for high school students, not for young children as depicted in the billboard, that the quote has been pulled out of its context that emphasises God's unfailing love and goodness. Now, Christian scholar Don Carson has pointed out that if there's anything that people in our world, in our culture, that is, uh, believe about God, it's that he loves us. People might say things like Jesus' main message is about tolerance, love, truth, beauty, acceptance. And there's great truth to those things. So how do these things fit together? How do we think of God's judgment on the one hand and his love on the other? You might hear people say that if we just lived and let live, we'd all be really happy. We'd have a really nice society if we just didn't judge people. And while John 3.16 might have been one of the most known Bible verses in previous generations, I've read that now, if you ask people what they know of the Bible, they'll say in the old King James, judge not lest you be judged, from Matthew chapter 7, verse 1. So what, in what sense do we see God's love and God's judgment in the Bible. How do those things fit together? What are we to make of those things? And that's what we're exploring this morning in John chapter 3. Now, how do God's love, how, do God's, how does God's love and judgment sit together? If God judges, how can we say that God loves? Now, there's sort of two big sections we're looking at today. There's the interaction with Nicodemus that Jesus has, but we're focusing mainly on verses 16 to 21 where John explains Jesus' meeting with Nicodemus and what it all means. And the first thing to notice from Jesus' interaction with Nicodemus is that each person needs to be changed from the inside. Each person needs to be changed from the inside. The story that we read, we see this man named Nicodemus. Now, he comes to Jesus at night, as as Wendy mentioned, so that he could talk to him, possibly without being noticed, because he's a Pharisee. And the Pharisees, as we'll see later on as we read through John's Gospel, they're part of Israel's religious uh, leadership, and they become unhappy with Jesus. They think that he's probably taking their place, teaching uh, uh, heresy and 
you'll see the tension that starts to build between the Pharisees and Jesus. So Nicodemus recognises there's something special about Jesus, but he wants to talk to him without people knowing about it. So Jesus comes and, and, and responds to Nicodemus's question uh, about the kingdom of God or uh, <clears throat> about how he comes from God. Jesus responds in a way that seems kind of cryptic and kind of strange. He says, I tell you the truth in verse 3, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they're born again. Now, it seems a little bit, as I say, cryptic, a little bit unconnected to the question that Nicodemus has asked. He's just really said, you're you're from God, I know that you're from God, and God must be with you. And then Jesus starts talking about being born again. So what's going on here? Well, Jesus is saying, yes, you've understood something about me, but to understand who I really am, to enter my kingdom, the place where I rule and where you can live with me forever... You have to be born again. He says you need to receive eternal life. And you receive that eternal life if you are changed from the inside by God. The emphasis Jesus is making is that knowing who Jesus is, is by Jesus, by God working in us to change us from the inside. Now Nicodemus, of course, you can understand, doesn't understand the point at all. He goes, well, you know... In verse 4, you can almost imagine him sarcastically kind of asking, what do you mean born again? Like I'm going to go back into my mum's womb and be born? Like we all know that's impossible. But what Jesus is saying, it's a metaphor. It's a word picture. He's saying to being born again, it's like starting all over again. It's a fresh start that God gives to people. And he changes who they are from the inside. Jesus explains it in verse 5 and 6. Just as you're born physically, you must be born of the Spirit to be prepared for eternal life. And he talks about being born of water and Spirit. Again, that sounds confusing. Scholars debate what it means. But the most likely explanation is that he's he's referring back to an Old Testament passage in Ezekiel where water is a symbol of being cleansed and washed and purified and changed. So it doesn't particularly have anything to do with baptism or anything like that, as some say. It's a picture that we need to be cleansed by God, changed by God, if we are going to understand who Jesus is, if we are going to be a part of his kingdom. And we all need that because our sins make us kind of dirty before God. And we need to be changed from the inside out, have our spirits changed by God's spirit so that we can be truly uh, part of God's people, so that we can understand who Jesus is. Now, for, for many, many people... That strikes you as odd, but for many, many people as well, that's amazingly, refreshingly good news that God offers the chance of a fresh start. That he says we can be changed and born again and renewed so that we can know God and live with him as our king. Now, perhaps people like Nicodemus, who was a religious teacher, thought that's a bit extreme, isn't it, to be like completely changed to be like a new person from the inside i mean i'm a religious kind of guy i just do the odd good thing isn't that isn't that what it's about but one of the encouraging things to think through is the way that it takes the responsibility off us to make ourselves right with god because none of us can do that 
None of us can ever do enough to make ourselves right with God. God's standard is perfection. And we all fail to live up to that expectation. Whether you're here or here, we all fail to live up to God's expectations. But Jesus offers a chance of renewal, complete renewal, that brings to us and makes us ready for eternal life. And that is amazingly wonderful news. God, in his kindness, gives each person a chance, a second chance, to have a fresh start, to be transformed. And it's a gift that each one of us can take hold of, simply by receiving it from Jesus, simply by asking and receiving it. Any one of us here can be reborn, can have that gift of eternal life. Now you might ask, how can I know that I've been born again? How can I know I've received that gift? If it's God's work, if it's his initiative, something he does to us, well, how how can I know that I've received it? Well, look at verse 8. Jesus compares the sovereign work of God with the wind, the way that we experience the wind. None of us, of course, can see the wind. We don't know where it's going or where it comes from, but you see its effects. You see the trees swaying, the papers swirling through the schoolyard being thrown around, you see the debris strewn across the place after a storm. That's the picture that he wants to help us see how God works. We can't see God's spirit, but we do see his change. We do see the changes the spirit makes in people's lives after they are born again. And so if you are born again, if you've trusted Jesus then you can look back on your life and notice changes in your life. The most, or the most obvious one being that you no longer just see Jesus from a kind of earthly perspective as like a good moral teacher or who happened to die a violent death. You'll see him as your risen Lord. You'll be blown away by him and his teaching and who he is and what he's done for us. And you'll see him as the king you want to bow down to, you want to worship. And while each one of us fail to do that properly every day, we, we want to change, we want to grow. And over time, we will see changes as the Spirit of God works in us and makes us a new person from the very core of our being. Now, John goes on to explain just how this shows God's love for us. And John, of course, knew what Jesus would do for us later, how he would ultimately express his love for us. And he talks about that in verse 14. He talks, <clears throat> you have to have, a, I guess, a little bit of um, <clears throat> background here because he talks about a snake being lifted up. Jesus uh, is, is like a snake being lifted up. Sounds strange, doesn't it? Um, but he's talking about something that happened to God's people Israel in a book of the Bible called Numbers. And I won't go into details, but it was where Israel had done something wrong, they'd sinned against God, and Moses held up this bronze snake. And as they looked at that snake... It was to remind them that, or that they were agreeing with God's righteous uh, de- decree that they deserved his punishment on them, but they could turn to him for forgiveness. And in the same way, that's like a picture or an illustration of how each one of us needs to trust that Jesus was lifted up on the cross and died for our sin. We need to acknowledge that we deserve God's punishment, that as he was on that cross, we deserve to be there. But we don't have to be, because Jesus was there for us. 
And that's how we enter the kingdom of God. That's how we gain eternal life, by simply believing that Jesus did that for us. That's all it takes. That's why it's a gift. You simply have to take hold of it and receive it with gratitude. Say to God, I know I don't deserve to be a member of your family. But I recognize that. And that's why I look to Jesus to take my sins on that cross. And that's where we turn to one of the most famous, as I mentioned, verses in the Bible, John 3.16. And this is where God explicitly says that he loves the world. God loves the world. Now, when God says he loves the world, what is he, what is he saying by that? What does he mean? He looks down on the world. World, you're so wonderful. Heaven would be horrible without you because you're so lovely. Because you're all so amazing. If we're honest, sometimes we do think that about ourselves, don't we? We think, hey, I'm a pretty wonderful person. Like, God kind of owes me. And, uh, you know, uh, I really do offer God a lot in this world. So, you know, of course he loves me. <laughs> but if you dig a little bit more deeply, you see it's actually quite a surprising statement. For, for, for John to write here that God loves the world, considering the way he often uses that world, word, world, is a surprising statement. Because when John uses the word world, both in his gospel and in his letters, which, he write, which are found later on in the Bible, he's often referring to more than just every person who lives in the world, he's often referring to a negative aspect of this world. John often uses the word world to refer to a pattern of living that is in rebellion against God. And that's why it's surprising for John to say God loves the world here. We see time and time again in the Bible that we're all born into a pattern of rebellion against God, every one of us. The Bible is full of people who do silly, rebellious, disobedient things. We are God's creatures, yes, but we're not as lovable as we'd like to imagine we are sometimes. Now, I'm not entirely sure what aspect of that statement we read before from that billboard the writers were offended by, but could it be that statement that we're all stuck in sin? Sounds a bit negative, doesn't it? Maybe it's a bit detrimental to a teenager's self-esteem to be told they're, they're stuck in sin. And certainly, I mean, let's be honest, there is a way to think of sin that seems really hopeless, and morbid and kind of judgmental that can leave us ashamed and full of guilt. And some people do think of God as the cranky old guy in the sky who just wants to zap us with his lightning bolts for our sins. But that's not the way that God wants us to think about his response to our sin. Now, if you like me, I mean, I look at that forest billboard and I think, yes, that does describe me. Without God, I am stuck in my sin. I, I do things that I, I don't want to do and I disappoint people in ways I don't want to and I say, you know, I lose my cool sometimes, all these sorts of things. I don't love God as I should. But to understand anything of God's love to us, we first have to understand how that describes you and me. We have to understand that we are sinners if we're going to appreciate God's love for us. And then we get to see his solution for us. 
You know, in some ways, God's love for us is a bit like the love that many parents have for their kids. Whether they're first in every subject at school or breaking curfew and getting into trouble. You know, if an older teenager gets home late one night, they've been out with their friends, they're out past when they said they'd be home and all that sort of stuff. They do often feel the wrath of their parents when they get home. And the parents at that point aren't looking at that teenager and just thinking, wow, you are so lovable for who you are and what you're like. But even so, even in this moment, many, and I won't say all, but many parents love their children. And there's a sense in which God's love is like that. He, he loves the world. There's a sort of unconditional love that he has for every person in this world. And he loved the world so much that Jesus gave himself for this world. For the very people who he created and then rejected him and made a mess of this world, God the Father gave Jesus the Son as a gift to benefit a world who can be so ungrateful and self-centered. Because he loves us too much to leave us like that. And he wants to give us his generous gift of eternal life. While Jesus' physical death and suffering was horrendous, what's more significant is the pain that he experienced when he experienced the Father's punishment for sin. The perfect Son, always loved and adored by the Father, was receiving the full punishment for our sins, and that's the measure of God's love for us, because it means we do not have to continue to experience the consequence of that sin in our lives. So look at verse 16 again. Whoever believes in Jesus receives eternal life. And at this point, while the, God loves the world, at this point, we see there is a distinction made. And it's one that leaves us as Christians with a kind of heavy burden and those who are not Christians here this morning with a choice to make. See, in verses 17 and 18, we see that only people who believe in Jesus are given this eternal life. And so the, the next point to make would be that God's love is especially shown to those who believe in Jesus. As we look at verses 17 and 18, God's love is especially shown to those who believe in Jesus. Now that could sound to some of you like a really arrogant kind of statement. But hopefully you'll see from these verses that it's far from that. See, verses 17 and 18 tells us that there's basically two types of people in this world. On the one hand, there are those who believe in Jesus and escape condemnation. But it also says there are those who do not believe in Jesus. And they are those who receive God's condemnation. Now it says that in verse 18. What does condemnation mean? You might have to look up Google. It says it's the expression of very strong disapproval. We see in verse 17 though, that God didn't send Jesus to condemn the world, but to save it. God sent Jesus here on a mission so that all of us could escape that condemnation, that disapproval of God's. And Jesus, of course, did that by taking that condemnation that hangs over every one of our heads on himself. We have to learn and remember that people aren't morally neutral and Jesus just kind of chooses the nicest ones to get eternal life and especially nasty ones to be condemned. It's not like that at all. Every person, the Bible would say, right from the beginning, 
deserves God's condemnation, but Caesar's sacrificial death is all the punishment that is needed to wipe that condemnation out for us. And people who believe that are completely saved. There's no more to pay. What are they saved from? They're saved from the consequences, the punishment, the shame of guilt and sin. And so far from a terrible message, it's really good news that Jesus offers that out to all people. Now, that is a statement that does shatter self-reliance. We can't get ourselves out from under that condemnation. And that's the message of the Bible. But God himself provides the way out. And it's Jesus. It's Jesus who saves us from the power, the guilt, and the consequence of sin. Now, it's a humbling message. For the proud, self-reliant people, it might just be something that's too difficult to accept. But Jesus himself says each person needs to respond to that. In verse 36, John explains that you can either accept what Jesus has done for you and receive life, or reject it and experience John, uh, God's condemnation. He says, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on them. And so we notice that it's actually Jesus who draws this distinction between people. You might say, if we were loving, we wouldn't do that. We wouldn't say there are those who are in and those who are out. It's a heavy kind of a teaching, but it's actually Jesus himself who does that. Jesus confronts each person, each one of us here, with a choice to make. Will we put our trust in him and receive life? Or go it alone, reject him and risk that we might ultimately face God's condemnation? But verse 7, uh, sorry, I want to show you uh, God's heart for us uh, from a passage in Ezekiel 18. Because it doesn't have to be uh, that way. We don't have to receive God's condemnation. He doesn't want people to reject him. He doesn't want people to be condemned. And I think this is a, a wonderful uh, illustration of God's heart for us. He says in Ezekiel 18, Do I take any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the sovereign Lord? Rather, am I not pleased when they turn from their ways and live? And this is why we spread the message of Jesus. This is why we meet together today to encourage each other to keep trusting and following Jesus because God's heart is that everybody in this world would accept him, even though we know some don't. And it's as simple as receiving the gift of life that Jesus offers. Romans chapter 10 verse 9 shows us this, that if if you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. In verse 13, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So for every one of us here, as we've seen these verses, that we have, have this knowledge of Jesus, the challenge is to take this message out to our world that so desperately needs it. To be the vessels through which God We'll give this message to a world that needs to know love. To put away any kind of self-righteousness we might have, any kind of superior, judgmental attitude we might have to those around us. To be humble 
and to realise that we're only made God's people because of Jesus' work for us. Now, I want to make one final point, and that's from verses 19 to 21. That's that God's love changes us. It's not our own efforts. God's love changes us. Now, in this little section, we see that some people don't want to believe in Jesus because they know it's going to change their life. And uh, I've told you before, when I was 18, I can remember being out with my friends and I had, I'd, I'd had interactions with some Christians from my primary school and I'd been going to Bible study. And I can remember being out one night with all my cricket mates and, and I was just thinking, I don't, I don't, if I become a Christian, I might have to give all this up, like going out. And I look back on it now and I think, gosh, how stupid. Like I was willing to exchange this sort of momentary pleasures for eternal life like it doesn't seem like a, a there's, it's a very even deal like why wouldn't I but that's the reality that we see Jesus pointing to here in verses 19 to 29 that, that God is offering eternal life but because so many people live in darkness and want to do their own thing they don't accept it why don't people want to receive this fantastic offer of eternal life look at verse 19 it says that light jesus himself has come into the world but people wouldn't come into the light because of their dark deeds jesus is calling people to himself but because people cling on to their rebellion they reject his call in fact people are so dark their actions so against god's plans for his creatures that it says they hate the light and they can they hate jesus and sometimes people do hate the real jesus and their claims on their his claim on their lives and it seems these people don't want to be exposed. I mean, that's what light does. It exposes what we're like. And, and so many people don't, naturally, none of us do. We don't want our weaknesses exposed. But what this signals is that when our friends, family, those we work with reject Jesus, it's not just some cool intellectual rejection of Jesus because the evidence isn't there or something like that. There's, there's a moral rejection there of Jesus. We don't like the implications for our lives. But for those who do follow and accept Jesus, we know that we can be real about who we are. We, we confess these things to, to God, to one another, to be real with ourselves, knowing that we're forgiven, knowing that we can move beyond these things. It's not that we think that we're people who have life all figured out and everything's all, all roses and all that sort of thing, but we know we're forgiven. And we know that whatever we do in this life, whatever uh, we might mess up, there's forgiveness by turning to Jesus. People who follow Jesus know that it's God who works in us to bring change and growth in character. And you see the expression used there that followers of Jesus live in the truth. And that's through God's work in us. We can give thanks to God that when we see growth and change and obedience in our lives... It's because God's at work in us to produce these things. And later we're told that God's spirit lives in us, that God is with us personally. So that we don't rush into the light to sort of show off our own good deeds and parade how good we are, but to show how good God is and to show what his work is like. Is like. So this, this morning we've seen that we don't just have a mushy, sentimental view of God's love. That God's love is kind of bigger and richer than that. He's not just like a cuddly teddy bear kind of person, just letting us do whatever we want. And there's something really good about that. There is justice to our world. Our actions do matter. And we've seen this morning that in one sense, yes, God does love everyone. He loves the world. 
He created all people to be in relationship with him and he wills that all would be. In another sense, he sets his love on a certain group of people. And for those people, the most loving thing to do is to tell the world about where their rejection of Jesus leads them and to urge them to turn around and to find forgiveness. And if you're someone here this morning who knows and loves Jesus, that is your job. That is our job together in this world. God's love is amazing and rich and deep. God's love doesn't just affirm everything about us. And perhaps that's what the group at Forest finds so offensive. In some ways, this billboard does sum up the Christian message, but just a part of it. As we see that we need to remember, it's not a message that brings condemnation. It's a message that brings hope to the world. The purpose of spreading this message is that people would turn from their sins, trust in Jesus, and receive eternal life. God doesn't leave us depressed, ashamed, wallowing in our sin. He paid the ultimate price for our sin that it could be completely taken away. And that's a message of hope and joy, a message that gives us purpose and confidence of eternal future. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you have set your love upon this world. We confess that we have done our part to reject you, that we have done our part to make a mess of this world. And so we are blown away and humbled by your love. That even though as hard as we try, we cannot change the situation, but you have done that. You've sent Jesus and you've completely taken the condemnation on on Jesus for us. Lord, we pray that each one here this morning will be able to see how loving and kind and generous Jesus you are, that each would turn to you for forgiveness. And for those that that still are uncertain or have questions, that they would find somebody they can speak to with love and kindness, somebody who want them to see your love and grace. Father, this week, send us out into this world to be those people who bring light to the world, to show your love to a world that so desperately needs it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.